So Money Episode 704, Ask Farnoosh with special co-host George Itzak. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Welcome to So Money, everyone. March 16th, Friday, 2018. It's been an interesting week. I'm Farnish Chirabi, by the way, your host. An interesting week because, okay, Sunday was daylight savings, and that just screwed my entire week up. I still think it's like Tuesday. I'm still waking up late and groggy. Uh, my husband and I joke that you know, there's this hotel across the street that you know we should just start going there, you know, trading nights once a once every other night. Our kids are still awake in the middle of the night. That's the other layered problem. <laughs> so, you know, losing an hour of sleep plus we lose sleep every night anyway. And um, how am I even here hosting this podcast? A lot of caffeine. That's how. All this to say. I'm so happy it's Friday and happy Nowruz to my fellow Persians out there. Not yet, not yet. It's next week. But as we know, it's a week long of festivities. The weekend is approaching and that means lots of parties, lots of Persian shenanigans, fire jumping. Some of you might be participating in that, including maybe my my co-host today, George Itzak. Let me tell you a little bit about George before I bring him on. So George is a classic example of why it's important to say hello to people. (laughs) I was in the cafeteria at 30 Rock, NBC, about, uh, I don't know, a month and a half ago, went to go get some breakfast on the, I think it's the seventh floor. And I'm talking to a friend and all of a sudden I hear, excuse me, excuse me, are you Farnish Tarabi? And I turn around and I'm, I'm, at this point, I don't know how this person might know me because I don't actually think people listen to this podcast. But in fact, it was a listener of this show, George, who works at NBC, heard my voice because how else would he have recognized me and took a chance, came up and introduced himself and was so gracious, so cool. And we immediately took a selfie, of course, because that's what you do and got to know each other a little bit better. And long story short, we're, we're buds now and he's on the show co-hosting with me and it wasn't his idea. I completely lured him on. George, welcome to So Money. Thank you, Farnoosh. Thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, it's a great story you just told. I'm, I'm a big firm believer in the cold hello, the cold email, the cold call because I've had a lot of success with that myself. Really? So I'm, I'm yeah. just one of many examples. <laughs> what's, what's, what's like something that really went amazingly well after you just said a sent a cold email or a cold hello so well i'll go back a little bit i was uh, i was a film student at nyu this was back in 2012 and you know i was young i loved films i loved filmmakers i watched a lot of short films online and i found one i really loved so i'm like just googling the director her name was eliza hitman and i see she's making a feature in in about six months so I, I get her contact information. I get in touch with her. I say, Eliza, I'm a huge fan. Loved her short. Can I do anything on your feature film? And at that point, obviously, I'm willing to work for free. You know, I'm 20 years old. I'm in college. It, it's no problem for me. And she responded. We met up for coffee. Six months later, I was on her film set. My, My first goodness. professional set. Yep. And her contact information was on her website, right? It wasn't like you had to go yeah. digging too far. Yeah. No, not at all. Yeah. 
Although if I, I can dig if I have to. I'm a journalist and I know, I know how to dig for contact info. That's incredible. <laughs> and and yeah, it's it's and I have examples like that in my life. It's it is so money. I'm gonna put a hashtag so money on that. I'm gonna file that under so money. And and George, you know, I wanted to also have you on the show also because I think as a young professional living in New York City, as a producer at a major network, you're you know, some people might be listening and going, I want to be George or I want to be a version of George where I feel like, you know, um, I'm living the dream. You know, you're still in your 20s, right? Uh, yeah, I'm 25 going on 26. All right. So have you had a quarter life crisis yet? Oh, you know, I wouldn't say I've had crises, but I've had lots of sort of roller coasters of thoughts and you know, you know, misgivings about what I'm doing or, you know, really confident moments in what I'm doing and changing course and changing track. I think it's just going to be, you know, my entire career, career will be like this. Well, you're definitely someone who can handle it. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you, give us one good tip for anyone who is living in an expensive city like New York or anywhere in the country or the world mm-hmm. in their 20s, trying to climb their careers, but also save and plant plant seeds for their future so that they have, you know, not just money for mm-hmm. until next Wednesday, but you know, for their future. It's a one tip, right? Just one. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll learn more about your financial savvy as we answer people's questions, but your best personal tip. For, for saving money and managing personal finance. In your 20s. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. you've got so many expenses and you're not making a ton of money. I think... The biggest sort of single one tip I can give is the first time you get your paycheck, automate the 401k mm-hmm. and immediately start putting away those first paychecks into savings. And obviously, this is something you do for your entire working life. But with those first paychecks, because, you know, you haven't been working before, you're not used to spending money. It's easier in the beginning to put that money away. For me, when I was doing that in my 20s, there is that moment where you have to make the decision and you're thinking, there's no way I can I can afford this because I have to pay my rent, I have student loans, and there's taxes that are going to be taken out of this paycheck as well. And you almost feel like, well, what's going to be left for me? But the beauty of automation is that when it's out of your paycheck before you even see your paycheck – you don't know any better and you'll just make the most of that paycheck when it comes and hits your bank account and you're less likely to do it on your own. You just are. So trust that. <laughs> that- actually, I like to offer a little bit of different opinion here. I, I don't actually automate most of my savings for me. And you know, this may might just be totally individual, but for me, the act of taking, whether it's a hundred dollars or 500 or a thousand out of my paycheck and hitting that transfer button to my savings account is the most gratifying thing because hmm. I mean, it's the closest I get to actually in holding a wad of cash in my hand and putting it in a different bucket. I, I can see that. I can see it. But you're very disciplined, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, for me, for yeah. me, it's sort of, you know, it's proof. Okay, I actually am saving mm-hmm. because I, I'm physically doing it right and now. And do you do this every week? Do you have a regular schedule of this or just however so, whenever you get make money? Well, I, I automate my 401k, that's right. pre-tax obviously, but at the end of the month, I, I look at how much you know I can feasibly take out of my checkings account and still pay rent, and that goes right into savings. And our listener here, Nana, she's got a question about her future, 
um, specifically how she can become a homeowner or apartment owner in the near mm-hmm. future. Is that something that you're looking to do? Absolutely. I mean, this is a, it's a very relevant question for me, my wife. Uh, we're in our mid-20s. Wait, 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 wait. You're married? <laughs> I am married, yes. Ah, you buried the lead, huh? <laughs> I've known you now for like eight weeks. I didn't know you were, I mean, not that we've talked every day or anything, but we've talked like a few times. You've and never, I guess, because our personal lives have never come up, but that's great. When did you get married? Uh, November 2016. Oh my gosh. So you're newlyweds. Yep. All right. Okay. <laughs> so this question, as you say, does kind of uh, hit home for you. Let's let Nina ask her question. She left it through SpeakPipe, which is our fancy record tool on somoneypodcast.com. It's not fancy at all. It's just a really fun way to be able to hear your voice. And Nana, take it away. Hi, Farnoosh. My question for you is how I can get ready to buy a home or an apartment. I live in the Bay Area, which is a very expensive housing market, and it's also very competitive and very crazy. But after dealing with many bad landlords and people illegally trying to evict us, I've realized that owning my own home is very important to me, especially if I want to continue living in the Bay Area, which is where I'm from. I'm 29 years old. I've worked in the nonprofit sector. I'm actually looking to go back to school for social work, which is a little bit better in terms of um, salary and benefits, but it's not a high paying profession. And I have some money saved right now. I have about $20,000 and I have no debt, but I may be taking out loans soon. And I don't have our family that can help me with buying a home. So just any advice you could give for someone like me on how to get started and how to own a home sooner than later. Thank you so much for everything you do. That crazy landlord is the wind beneath your wings, Nana. (laughs) (laughs) If you are, and it sounds like this, and this is important, you know, because when you're wanting to buy a home, it's not just about the money, it's about your head. Are you in it to win it? Because owning a home is a lot of work and psychologically you want to be able to be certain that you're going to be able to want this, handle this, and appreciate the ups, the downs, the sideways of owning a home. And so she just asks any advice. It sounds like she has some nice stepping stones already. She's got $20,000 in savings, no debt, perfect. Amazing. Because Amazing. I think the other thing you want to be very careful about when you're planning or plotting the home purchase is your credit. So I assume with no debt and some savings that her credit score, I'm guessing, is probably in a good place in the 700s or higher if she hasn't ever foreclosed on anything or had any late payments. It sounds like she may also have good credit, but check because you never know. So you can check your credit score using your bank's app. You can check it in myriad ways. The best interest rates for homeowners or people who are applying for mortgages um, go to those with credit scores of 740 or higher out of 850. So if you want to be if you want to get the best interest rates on that future home mortgage, 740, 750 or higher is where you want to be. And I would also say, Nana, that it's important to start to survey the market, figure out the radius in which you want to live, start to learn about home prices and what it will take to be able to actually live in that neighborhood. So if you realize that your dream neighborhood for now the average home price for a starter home is 
$500,000, well, what does that mean for you? That means that realistically, in order to be a qualified bidder on this home, you want to have about 20% of that home's sale price in a bank account. So you want about $100,000 in cash for the down payment. That doesn't include the money for, gosh, the, the closing costs and all the, maybe the lawyer fees that you might have to hire. And so I would just say, run the numbers, be realistic about what you can afford. If your dream neighborhood is out of reach, then what about the periphery of that dream neighborhood? Um, you know, location is oftentimes the most important thing when we're looking for a home. But in some ways, we, in some cases, we may find out that we're completely priced out at the moment. So that, that either means you need to change your geography, change the location, or wait longer, save more. And in the meantime, just keep on, keep on. Like you're doing well. I mean, if whatever you're, if you, however you save that 20,000, if you can double that and continue having no debt, maintain a good credit score, keep your eye out for opportunities. Maybe if you have a friend who had a really great real estate agent, start talking to the professionals and they can start taking you to open houses, getting educated, spending a good six months to a year just educating yourself and learning and seeing is invaluable. George? I think what Nain is doing really well is kind of identifying the fact that the Bay Area is very competitive and very expensive. And you have to call it for what it is. In the last quarter of 2017, there has been a documented exodus from San Francisco. I saw that. Yeah. More residents left San Francisco than any other U.S. city. And in another survey done just last month, 49% 49% of San Francisco residents surveyed said they are considering moving due to the high cost of living. Mm-hmm. So I think the sort of uphill battle that Nana is up right now is going up against right now. I mean, it's notable and she should realize that it's difficult to do this where she lives much more so than other cities in this country. And I don't mean this, I don't mean to say it to discourage, but rather right. to encourage that, you know, the fact that she has money saved up and no debt and is already living in, in the city she wants to buy in. That's a great thing. Yes. And so we leave you, Dana, with some tactical advice, but also some deep thoughts, right? I mean, if you love your career and you want to work at this nonprofit or you want to stay in the social work field, I mean, realistically, that is not a, a, a it's not historically a very lucrative path uh, and at least not enough to, to afford the high ticket real estate prices that we're seeing right now in the Bay Area in San Francisco and all of their uh, suburban, even the suburbs are, are terribly expensive. So, you know, there's going to be a trade-off at some point maybe for you as you get closer to this goal. Maybe it means changing careers. Maybe it means changing geography. Or maybe it means listening to all the episodes in So Money, to all the amazing people who have, despite all odds, despite maybe not making a lot or living in a high exp- in an expensive area, saving their darndest, saving half of their salary, 75% of their salary. How do they do it? Oh my gosh, they live home with their live at home with their parents. They 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 strictly budget their uh, their groceries and their ex- in mis- miscellaneous costs. They um, live with three roommates for a year. They oh, they work overtime. And so, you know, it's also about how badly do you want this and how soon do you want this? That's going to necessarily dictate the adjustments that you're going to, you're going to have to make. Financially, I think that you have a good head on your shoulders, strong head on your shoulders. You know, financially what this takes, but 
as far as what your timeline is, that may mean you either have to accelerate whatever you're doing financially or you know, you can give yourself some more time. But I hope this has been helpful. We've gotten we've got a lot of great podcasts about home purchasing and we've interviewed real estate experts on the show before. So I encourage you to go to so many podcasts dot com and look up the archives, type in real estate or home purchase, and you'll probably find some additional really good episodes. Thanks for your question and keep us posted. And actually, Farnoosh, I'd love to ask a follow-up to that home ownership question. Yeah. Um, I know that- For Dion, a friend, right? <laughs> I think on behalf of Nana, for, for a friend and for myself, for everyone. Um, I know that beyond that down payment, 20%, you have to also have some liquid cash for, you know, obviously closing costs. For uh, Some co-ops will, in New York, will, for example, will require several years of maintenance to, mm-hmm. to be in your bank account. Right. Um to what extent does any money in a 401k help sort of contribute to that post down payment cost in, in the sense that is that factored in at all? If you have 20 K 30 K in your 401k, does that help you sort of meet that liquidity requirement? Banks are interested in your debt to income ratio. And I don't believe a 401k is factored into that because a 401k mm-hmm. really should be reserved for retirement. I think banks res- recognize that it's not, meant to be this vehicle to afford a home. And if gotcha. you do have to cash out your 401k to buy the house, you should, you're buying the wrong house. You probably shouldn't buy that house, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. So that was a great question. I'm glad that we are able to help you as well, George. Are you thinking of buying in Manhattan or have you even started? I mean, look, my wife and I are at the place where we're saving, but I mean, prices and the down payment requirements are, are just so high that I mean, do I see it? a specific point when we're going to be able to afford, you know, whether in Brooklyn or Manhattan or Queens, I don't really, I don't see that specific point, but we're saving for now. And I think we'll uh, figure it out as we go along. There's no harm in saving. There's no harm in saving as you are figuring it out. Yeah. All right. We have a question here from Jackie. George, do you want to read it off for us, please? Sure. Jackie says, I'm a 36 year old woman with 60 K in my 401k and 50 K in student loan debt. Should I open an index fund now or wait until after my student loan debt is paid off? All right. She's 36 years old. And I did read a rule of thumb that by by 30, you should have at least what you make in a 401k. You should have your salary, the equivalent of your salary in a, a 401k. Year, a year of salary, correct? Yeah, one year salary. <laughs> so if she is making... 60k or 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 around there then and that is what is in her 401k i'd say she's in a pretty decent spot Uh, although i think as women we suffer from a huge investing gap because we typically make less than men we live longer than men so i'm not saying you're you're done investing for retirement or that you can just keep status quo but let's analyze the other part fifty thousand dollars in student loan debt i don't know what the interest rate is on this debt i don't know if this debt is keeping you up at night i don't know if this is completely stretching you thin let's give this a few scenarios if there's one if jackie you're in this particular scenario right where you have a little bit of money left over every month, which sounds like you do because you're looking at maybe opening up an index fund to invest that extra cash. And your student loan debt, let's say, is has a very low interest rate, let's say 5% or less. Then I would say open the index fund instead because as a long-term investment, you're more than likely to make – you'll do better than 5% on average with that index fund over, say, 
25, 30 years, which is, you know, if you're looking for as this to be a, an investment vehicle for retirement, that's probably your time frame. If your interest rate on those student loans is very high, we're talking 8%, 9%, double digit zone, then I think your priority should be to knock down the principal on those student loans. If, if you feel like your student loans are in an okay place, and you're not worried about the interest rate, it's not keeping you up at night, you're able to make those payments easily, and then you've got some money left over, well then put money towards retirement, towards investments. What do you think, George? I mean, I think you have great advice for Anush, and I think that, you know, let's say if Jackie waits five years until all her loans are paid off, well, that's five years of growth in the market that she could have potentially benefited from. I mean, there's, you know, the factor of time here. Student loan debt, I mean, Generally speaking, you'll get a higher return on that index fund than you would lose on the student loan interest, correct? So I think in, if, you know, if, yes. the interest, if the interest rates align the way you've described, then it's a no-brainer. Yeah, and again, going back to the female factor, it cannot be ignored. You know, I think that yeah. it's true that we are, we are arriving at retirement with much less in the bank than men. And that's for a number of reasons. One is we make less over our lifetime – because we're in and out of our careers, the gender wage gap, but we're also perhaps not being as um, as proactive, as aggressive with investing. And I'm talking in terms of just you know contributions to our retirement accounts. And so, I would encourage any woman who is contemplating putting more towards her investments and can can afford it to do it. I would definitely say go for it because uh you'll you'll need it for sure. The good news is we're living longer, but you know, we need to afford that. Moving on to Julia George, maybe this is also something that you can really help us with. Actually definitely, yeah. She's in your demo. She's 23. Mm-hmm. Uh she lives with her parents and wants to start investing. How did you move out of your parents' house basically after college or after? Not, not at all. I so I lived at my parents' house in Queens, New York. So I'm lucky in the fact that my parents live in New York City, so I could commute to work from their home. So I lived there for the first three years of of, of working after after college. And did that help you basically catapult your savings? Absolutely, because I had to show low overhead in those you know first three years of working. I had enough money to to really jumpstart my life. I had enough money to propose to my girlfriend, to buy an engagement ring and wedding band, <laughs> to to rent an apartment with all the expenses involved, security deposit first and last month, moving costs, new furniture, wow. all, all of that. Um, and to be honest, I, this was all before I knew anything about personal finance. So if I actually knew what I know now during those three years, I could have easily doubled what I had saved. All right. So maybe you can give her some advice. She says every time she starts to talk about her, to talk about money with her parents, they get stressed. She wants to invest and she's asking for them, asking them for maybe some help or some just to have the conversation. They get stressed. It goes nowhere. I don't know what's going on here. Could do you, can you imagine? Well, I, I think there's a lot to unpack here. I, obviously, we don't know much about you know, Julia's background or her family life or anything like that. But I think stepping away from her specific situation, I think a lot of people have different associations and preconceived notions of the stock market. And I know in many cultures and countries, people associate the stock market with risk and with rich people. So it can be hard to enter the market if you don't feel yourself as a rich person, if you don't associate yourself as a rich person. And I know in many specific countries you know, who've been through a lot of 
tumult and difficult financial situations in the past several decades, entering the stock market, it's a really sort of dangerous thing. Right. Risk averse. Exactly. Risk averse. Right. Exactly. So I think yeah. if we, if Julie can sort of understand where her parents are coming from, and I think ultimately the best way to convince them if they're hesitant is proof of concept. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't advocate going behind your parents' back, especially if it's with their money. But, you know, if you can demonstrate $100, you know, in this fund, in this stock can grow this much percent over this period of time. And, you know, this is about the long term, not the short term. You can sort of make that very well-educated argument to them. You might be able to see it if it's on paper. And I think that a lot, and that's great advice, because I've even interviewed people on this podcast. I'm trying to remember, for example, there was Primoz Bozic. Bozic. Yeah. I'm going. I'm totally botching his last from name. Slovenia. From Slovenia, who said that he couldn't even talk about his job with his parents or his family, really, because he was doing so well and he was making oodles of cash, but it was, you know, it was an honest day's work. It was good work. He was talented. And yet he felt like he couldn't wear his success like a badge of honor, like we all do here in the United States. And I just felt really sad about that. But I guess, you know, we live in a bubble. There's the whole world out there and how we interpret money and success is not how others do. And so, yeah, I would say, Julia, if you're close with your family, talk to them about what is at the root of their discomfort around talking about investing. And I'm sure if it's, if there is a, an underlying pain or, or, or emotional issue that it doesn't just touch on investing, but maybe it's other financial issues as well. And I, but I would say maybe to kind of make a, for an easier conversation, you can introduce to them all of the kind of new technology that's helping to democratize this concept of investing, whether that's Acorns, the app, which rounds up every purchase you make to the nearest dollar and takes the change and puts it in like an investment portfolio for you. Super, super age, you know, new agey and easy. And they have millions of users. And it's certainly not something that, you know, Warren Buffett's using. It's, it's, it's for the rest of us, right? It's for everyday people who want to get into the stock market. There's also tons of robo-advisors, these lower cost automated platforms that you can invest in index funds and ETFs and get into the market that way. Again, democratizing the process. And I will leave you with this. You mentioned this, George, that we think mm -hmm. that, you know, in order to invest, you have to be rich. But one of my favorite expressions, and I don't know whoever said this, but I'm going to borrow it. You don't need to be wealthy to invest, but you do need to invest to be wealthy. And if your goal is to finish rich, you need to put your money to work in more ways than just live, letting it sit in your checking account. So at this point, Julia, if you feel like you've talked the talk with your parents, you've exhausted the topic, they're just every time they shut you down look, there are other people you can confide in. And it's not about going behind your parents' back. If this is your money and you want to make the most of it, there are other ways you can educate yourself and also find accountability partners. Maybe you can start your own investing club. I'm sure there are friends who want to do this like you do and hang out together, talk about it. In that way, you might find your own community. And, and that's advice for everybody. You know, Sometimes you're not going to find the support that you expect to have from your family. And that doesn't mean they don't love you. It's just that this is not something that they enjoy. So move on, you know, and find your, find your community. They're out there. Yeah. And d definitely don't give up, Julia, because this period of your life, 
when you can live with your parents and you're young and you have a lot of time in the workforce ahead of you, this is when you can build a great financial base. And that includes investing. Thanks, George. All right. Next is Molly. And she wants to know if she should refinance her home loan to pay off her debts. She's got $30,000 in credit card debt, $40,000 in student loans. And so... She's a homeowner. That's the that's pretty cool. She has equity in her home apparently. So if she were to refinance, she could maybe pull out some of that uh, that equity and use that to pay off the debt. Honestly, I don't like using your home as an ATM. Uh, I think we learned that a, a short while back uh, that a home is not really an investment. It shouldn't be seen as that. If you have equity in your home, congratulations and fantastic. When you go to sell it, you can use that money to purchase another property or just bank it. And and that's great. That's the icing on the cake. That I don't think we should ever rely on equity for anything. I know that it used to be the status used to be parents used to pull out their equity to pay for college, or we would pull out our equity in this case to pay off debt. And maybe financially it makes sense because the interest on your mortgage or home loan is less than the interest on the credit cards and the student loans. So financially it's it's maybe better off to do that. But that's just looking at it one way. I look at it a totally other way. I look at it as you really making your home life vulnerable. Are there other ways to do this is really the, what I'm getting at. You know, have you really looked at other options? Pulling equity out of your home should be a last ditch effort. In my view, I look, I love real estate. I love when I see home prices go up. It makes me feel good. But I really get nervous telling someone, yeah, sure. Why don't you just refinance, pull out some of the equity and pay off debt? I feel like that's not the responsible thing to do. The more responsible thing would be maybe to try to get a side hustle to pay off that debt. You can consolidate the credit card debt with the student loans. There are lenders out there that would entertain this to get maybe at least just one payment or a reduced interest rate. You could consider transferring that credit card if you know you can pay it off in a short period of time to a 0% APR credit card. There are other things to consider. George, can you help me out here? Because I'm feeling like... (laughs) The, the, you know, the shiny apple is the equity in the home because that's, that's just money sitting there. And she's like, I could just pull that out and pay this off easy peasy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it definitely seems like an easy solution, but I think there are several avenues, like you mentioned, to go down before getting to that place. With, this, with the 40K in student loans that she describes, you can definitely call the student loan companies and negotiate down a lower monthly payment, which I've done myself. And it, it took all of 15 minutes. They just immediately approved it. And that saved me hundreds a month. So to sort of lessen the impact of those student loan payments, you can definitely do that. I think, yeah, obviously the credit card, it's a little trickier because it has a much higher interest rate. And you really feel that when you get that monthly bill and you see that they've taken out that much money for interest. Um, But, you know, in, in my own life, I've seen family use home equity not to get out of debt, but rather to avoid getting into debt. So they'll use that equity to cover tuition bills, like you said, um, which seems to me like a little bit more of a legitimate use of that equity versus paying off debt that's already accumulated. 
Yeah, I like what you say about the student loan debt. I mean, for sure, there's a lot you can do as far as negotiation, calling your lenders, and I would even call your credit card companies and your uh, your banks and just say, "Look, I'm. Uh, is there anything we can do?" And if you really feel like this credit card debt is taking a huge bite out of your budget, it's not leaving you with much at the end of the month. You can look into working with a credit counselor at the National Foundation for Credit Counseling. They're excellent. NFCC.org. They. They are all over the country in all in many towns. You can go and visit them and tell them your situation. The first meeting is free. What they may decide to do for you, if they think it's viable, is to work on your behalf as a credit counselor and basically negotiate better terms on your credit card debt. They're not settling your debt which is different than modifying your debt. Settling your debt means that they uh, come up with a deal with the credit card companies to have you pay your debts off completely for pennies on the dollar, but that typically reduces your credit score. It's a negative impact on your credit. A modification is more like the credit counselor negotiated a better interest rate, got rid of some fees, Etc. to help make those monthly payments more affordable, but it's not a quick fix. It's more just of a, how can we maybe create some more breathing room into this, uh, into this credit card debt. So if you really feel like you need help, then nfcc.org is someone that I've uh, referenced for many years now. Rounding us off is an anonymous listener and she or he is new to the podcast, George, and yeah. says, great info so far. By the way, thank you to everybody for leaving the recent reviews. Thank you to everybody for ever leaving a review. We have hundreds and hundreds of them. But recently in the last few weeks, maybe as a birthday gift to me, <laughs> I know I, I asked and so we've had multiple uh, positive reviews. We're at 613 reviews. I I'm, I'm, can't believe it. So just want to shout out to everybody. I'm going to just shout people out now. Ready? Here we go. Uh, I digress a little bit, but this is important. Aunt Margaret says, very valuable. Sav74, five stars, says this podcast is so fun to listen to. Extremely informative. It has changed my life. Really? I can't take credit for that, but I'll read it out loud to everybody else. Uh, Jessica5291 says she's obsessed Five stars says uh, the podcast has been a game changer for her. Thank you. It's been a game changer for me. I mean, I can't believe it's been three years, six million downloads, and I'm meeting new people like George. I've I've made friends through this podcast. What better gift is that? So anyhow, Anonymous says, wondering if we've ever talked about life insurance on this show. And we uh, absolutely have. She or he is not uh, maybe through finishing all the 600 episodes. I get it. It takes a bit of time. Wants to know what age should I get life insurance? What kind of life insurance? Well, I will just say this, that I do think that at some point in everyone's life, a little life insurance could help. Um, specifically, if you are somebody who has a financial dependent, children, parents, relatives, and you want to leave something to these people in the event that you, um, God forbid, something happens to you, you, um, you die and you want to be able to make sure that the people that you're providing for continue to receive aid and money. I know a lot of us in our early 20s get pitched life insurance. I certainly did. And I went down that rabbit hole. Yeah, same and, here. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> honestly, I got to this epiphany where I was like, well, who is it for? Right? 
what like I know funeral there's funeral costs, but I don't need a million dollar life insurance policy at 25, especially if I have no dependents. And so I think that as your life evolves and you ha- get married and you have children and you do have people in your life now that are depending on you to some extent or an entire extent for money, then you do need life insurance. The rule of thumb is like eight to 10 times your salary in the moment. And I recommend a term policy, not a forever policy like whole, but a term policy. Typically people get something that will provide, say, for their children until they reach 22 or 18. They want to maybe provide for them through college. That is doable and it's relatively affordable if you get it when you're healthy and when you're younger. But if you're in your early 20s and you have no one to care for right now, financially speaking, then you don't need life insurance in my estimation. But yeah, George, you didn't get the life insurance. I didn't. No, no. I I went through the numbers and I mean, it just seemed very expensive for the place where I'm at right now where I don't have kids yet. Um, Definitely when we have family. We're going to have that talk again. But also I'm just a little bit sort of averse to the whole concept because I've seen people in my family get a little bit burned getting the sort of insurance that expire, that goes away once they reach a certain age and they haven't died yet. So essentially, you know, they would spend 20 years putting money into this insurance. They reached 80 years old and then, you know, it's all gone. They're not covered anymore. And, And that was a combination of, you know, not knowing enough and being pitched by the, being sold to by the wrong kind of person. And, so I, I've seen the downside of getting life insurance and not getting it the right way. Yeah. Well, welcome to the show, Anonymous. We hope that you enjoy all the episodes or as many as you can get to. And George, this has been really fun. I'm really glad that you yeah, has been. join us. Um, you're a producer for NBC News. Did we mention this? Yep. Yeah, in the beginning, yes. We did in the beginning. All right. So tell us some of the exciting projects you're working on. Well, what I'll say is, I'll tell you the, sort of the best things I've worked on in my career so far, and I'll give you a little bit of a look at what's ahead. So I've been at NBC for four years now. I got my start actually at the Sochi Olympics. So one of my first jobs out of school, I actually graduated early to, to do this job, who was to go to Sochi, Russia, and work with the Today Show to cover the Olympics as, as a production assistant. Incredible. Um, so that was, yeah, that was absolutely you know, life-changing, incredible, un- unforgettable. At Nightly News, where I work mostly on the weekend broadcast, I mean, I really, I've covered such a wide range of stories. Um, it's been obviously very interesting in, in the Trump era. Mm-hmm. The, there's, a, there's a sort of increased fervor, especially when you're covering d- domestic stories that, in some, that somehow relate to the administration. I, I, I got to work on this great assignment, the, the story that I pitched about something called conservative move, which is an interesting sort of uh, combination of politics and personal finance and economics where we we tracked people moving from California, from uh, liberal and democratic counties in California to red Texas based on political reasons, ideological reasons, and economic reasons, hmm. which all, all, all tied together, of course. So it was a, this phenomenon of thousands of families, Republican families moving from California, wow. seeking, in their, in their own words, a refuge from the liberal wasteland. And it was just a, it's a really fascinating look at the country today and how, you know, these people's, a lot of them were also leaving the San Francisco Bay Area, you know, because of the high cost of living, which they attribute to democratic policies. So we we took a really great look at this 
sort of sociological phenomenon. Moving are, for your politics. That's pretty exactly, compelling. Exactly. And those are the kind of stories I love to tell that sort you know, g- giving voices to the people f- from all sides of the spectrum of the aisle, whatever you want to call it. That's awesome. Well, and I know you just got promoted too. So congratulations. I'm just going to brag about you, everyone. <laughs> everyone, thank you to George and thank you for listening. I hope you all have something fun to look forward to this weekend. And happy St. Patrick's Day to all you that celebrate. Be responsible. Hope your weekend is so money. 